Daniel, Dr. Mays, what a beautiful song. We appreciate you leading us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 9. We're going to do a part two this morning of something we started last week, a sermon out of John chapter 9. We'll just be looking at the first three verses, and I've entitled this morning's sermon as a part two again of last week, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Part two, John chapter 9, we'll just be looking at verses 1 through 3. The Apostle John writes this, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time of worship, and as we continue worship through the Word, pray that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see from this text in a way that would enable us to see Jesus, to see your points or your purposes in our lives, and that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I read an article this week by Rabbi Harold Kushner, which in his famous book that was entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People?, where I took the sermon title from. It is a common question, but there's also books written with that question and articles written with that question. It was written back in 1981. Kushner has been on Larry King Live. You might have seen him there along with John MacArthur and others from time to time as different world events would happen after 9-11, after certain tragedies, oftentimes that they would be on that show talking about, well, what happened? And why did this happen? And where are we to see God in all of this? The history behind that book that uh, Rabbi Kushner wrote was this. Aaron, he had a son named Aaron. He was three years old. And when he was three, he was diagnosed with progeria. And progeria is a devastating disease that causes rapid aging. Most victims die in their early teens. Aaron died two days after his 14th birthday. Up until Aaron's death, Kushner, a Jew, believed that the world was a fair place. He believed that God rewarded and protected good and punished evil. He believed that God controlled every moment of our lives, that God had the power to make anything happen. But after Aaron's death, it became impossible for Kushner to continue to hold on to those beliefs. He then pieced together a new system of faith, and he worked that out in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book was published to great acclaim, and people of all religious beliefs could relate to it though it spoke most strongly to Jews and to Christians. After much thinking and much studying, Kushner came to the conclusion that God is not omnipotent, meaning that God is not all-powerful. He felt like God cannot intervene in the day-to-day affairs of life. Instead, God created a world, Kushner says, that is, has immutable natural laws. For instance, if the weather conditions are right, a tornado occurs and people might get hurt or killed. If a fault line moves, there is an earthquake and God cannot intervene to save one person while another person dies. People do not live or die based on good or bad behavior. So what good is God if he can't stop bad things from happening? Some have asked of Kushner. According to God's purpose, Kushner says that God's purpose is to provide solace 
and strength during difficult times. He writes, quote, the God I believe in does not send us the problem. He gives us the strength to cope with the problem, close quote. Well, you can see after a, a reference like that why so many people would be drawn to Kushner's teaching. In a sense, he's trying to get God off the hook, saying, well, there's no way God causes anything evil to happen, so in order for evil to happen, he must not be powerful enough to prevent it, so let's take God's power off the hook, and things just happen like they happen, and the only thing God can do is try to comfort people in the pain. Well, don't be sucked in to that humanistic way of thinking. I don't agree with Rabbi Kushner, and neither should you. First of all, he rejects Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the only way to heaven. Second, he rejects the God of the Bible, and he claims that God is, is not all-powerful and that God is not necessarily all-loving, and he doesn't really understand why evil even exists. Third, Kushner rejects the Bible itself as being the only source of authority. He rejects its inerrancy, its infallibility, and the fact that it's inspired by God. He rejects the entire New Testament. He rejects the idea that all we need for life and godliness is found in the Scripture. Well, I believe that the Bible does teach that God is all-powerful and all-loving, and that He is sovereign over all things, even evil. Matthew 10, 29 states that not a bird falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. Proverbs 21, 1 says that the king's heart is like a river in the hands of the Lord, that he directs it wherever he wills. Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 135, 5 and 6 says, The Lord is great and that He is above all gods, that He does whatever He pleases in heaven and on the earth. Psalm 148, 7 and 8 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the deeps, fire and hell, snow and mist and stormy wind, which is fulfilling His word. Proverbs 16 says that the die is cast into the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord. That chapter also says, Proverbs 16, a man designs his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Mark 4, 37 through 39, talks about how there arose a fierce gale of wind and waves upon the Sea of Galilee, and the waves are breaking in over the boat, and Jesus got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. See, Kushner's God couldn't do that. He has no power over the elements of the earth, and he has no power over the events of mankind, whereas all of these verses point to the power and to the might and to the sovereignty of our God. We don't have to take God off the hook for anything. And rather, we can praise Him for who He is. I love that great hymn by Isaac Watts, I sing the mighty power of God. The third stanza of that great hymn says this, There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. And everywhere that we can be, thou God 
art present there. It's truths like that that we hang on to in the midst of difficult times. And yes, I am afraid that Rabbi Kushner is wrong, that the Bible teaches us that God is all-powerful and He is sovereign and He does rule over all things. I appreciate John Piper, who writes on this topic often in his books and preaches on in his sermons. He writes this, quote, There are emotional reasons as well for believing in God's absolute sovereignty. If I rejected the sovereignty of God over all things, including my will and my life, I would lose the very God, the very power that stands behind all the promises that make my life livable in pain. He goes on to say, so when you surrender the sovereignty of God in order to get him off the hook of calamity, you also lose him at the point where you need power to endure the calamity and see all the calamity turned for good. If God is going to be rejected here, then what have I got except a godless calamity? You hear what Piper's saying? He's saying that if, if you try to get God off the hook by saying that he has no power to intervene, then you're saying that God is impotent and that he's powerless and he's just as susceptible to nature as you and I might be. If you say that God doesn't have the power to intervene, then you're saying that man is stronger than God. If you're saying that God doesn't have the power to intervene, then you're saying that the Bible is not true and that God is a liar. Now, who wants to stand with Kushner now? I would say no, Rabbi Kushner. I would say no to the philosophies of this world, no to any other religion. Your ignorance and your soft words offer no hope in the end, your foundation is false, and the consolation you offer does not satisfy the God-given passion for truth and for meaning and for purpose in the midst of pain. As I said last week, eternity makes a difference in how we interpret pain. Pain is a gift that awakens us to our need for God. Without pain and heartache, we might not be asking these hard questions. And God shows us a way through the pain. When we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, who suffered at Calvary, there are more verses in the Bible that prepare us for the pain of life than there are verses in the Bible that comfort us. I would say, God does want us to be comforted by his love, but the idea is it's not about a comfortable life. It's about dealing with trials and hardships in life and learning to trust God in the midst of it. So yes, bad things do happen to good people, but instead of complaining about how we can't understand how a loving God would allow that to happen, we should instead be saying, why do good things happen to bad people? We're all bad. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve His wrath and His judgment. The wages of sin is death. The only way to correct this problem and what's fair is to realize that grace isn't fair. And He gives us grace. And the fact that He gives us grace changes everything. And the fact that I can be born again and saved shows us that we have a good God who gives good things to bad people. 
And so this morning, we want to continue to just look at the fact that God is a good God, and He is all-knowing, and He is all-loving, and He is all-powerful. And I want to give you two truths this morning about trials that will help you to process trials as they come into your life. So the first part, kind of a rerun of last week, number one, trials in life are inevitable. They are inevitable. Look at verses one and two. As he passed by, he, that would be the Lord Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All we're saying with this first point that that, uh, trials are inevitable, blind people are everywhere. Sick people are everywhere. Problems in life are everywhere. They didn't even see this man born blind. It was as Jesus had to stop. It's as if they were walking by and nobody saw this man because they were so accustomed to him just sitting there at the temple begging for money. And Jesus stopped. And it just reminds us that if we stop and look around us, there's pain everywhere. Every home has a hurt. Every heart has a difficulty that you struggle with. It's everywhere. It's inevitable. So we shouldn't be surprised. Your first blank there, if you're taking notes, don't be surprised. It's, it's just a part of life. First Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I did tell you that in context, that verse is talking about persecution for the gospel's sake, but in principle, it's still the same. We shouldn't be surprised when someone cuts you off on the freeway. We shouldn't be surprised when the milk gets spilt. We shouldn't be surprised when your kids wake you up in the middle of the night. You shouldn't be surprised when at the end of the month there's no more money there because you spent it all, all month long. So don't get to the end of the month and be like, oh, what happened? Check your credit card. Right? That's what happened. Right? So I'm just saying, don't be surprised when the difficult things happen. It's part of life. Instead, in that moment, ask God to help you respond with a way that will grow you in your character and allow you to be a blessing to someone else and how to, you can glorify God in, the, in that moment. Listen, the difference between a Christian and a non-believer is that Christians, when they face trials, show strength and they show trust and they don't crumble, and they don't necessarily even become stoic. They say, this really stinks, and this is real hard, but I serve a God in heaven who's in charge of it all, and I serve a God in heaven who will get me through. So don't be surprised. Number two, don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions that you know exactly why that trial is there. We talked about the question that the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents sinned that he was born blind? They had reduced this particular episode of what happened in the Gospels to where it had to be one of two things. It was either this man's sin or it was his parents' sin. And we spent a long time unpacking that for you last week. But at the end of the day, Jesus says it's neither. It's neither. It's so that the work of God, look at verse 2 again, or verse 3, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And so the idea here is don't come to conclusions that you know why somebody's going through a hard trial. We did discuss that certain sins, like drunkenness over a period of time, lead to cirrhosis of the liver. We get that. So there is a connection with some sin and some physical sickness. And there are stories in the Bible about people who sin and they drop dead or they get leprosy. So it can happen. 
But we also talked about be careful that you don't just assume if somebody's baby's born blind that you walk up to them and say, what did you do? What's wrong with you? Have you got sin in your life? How disgusting that would be, right? And if you're that kind of person here at our church, that would require a pastoral visit. I would show up to your house if I ever hear you say something like that and say, brother, sister, let's sit down with the word of God and let me help you work through this. You're, you are not allowed to go up to people and say, the only reason this difficulty is in your life is because you sinned or someone else sinned against you or your parents sinned. No, that's not accurate to the scripture. And yet at the same time, we're learning this morning that sometimes God wants to do something greater than what you assume. You might assume you're going through it for this reason or that reason, and there, it may be a totally different reason. It might not even be for you. It might be for somebody else who's watching you go through what you're going through, and God ends up saving them through it as they see your faith. And so the idea here is that Jesus reveals himself in a whole new way. And throughout the story of John 9, as we unpack it over the next several weeks, we'll just see this incredible evangelistic opportunity that now this man has and his family has to point to Christ as the Savior. And so the first truth about trials is we must learn that they are inevitable. And the second truth about trials is that trials in life are for your good. They are. They are for your good. God is going to be glorified in your trial when you respond the right way, and he's doing it for good. Your next blank says, trust God that your trial was predetermined. Trust God that your trial was predetermined. There's something about the grammar in verse 3, or even the syntax, we could say, the immediate context, that gives us this idea that it wasn't about this man's sin, it wasn't about his parents' sin, it was that God might be glorified. And you kind of get the sense that God had this planned all along. In other words, there's no surprise in the text where Jesus is like, I have no idea what's going on here. Just by the fact that he quickly answers is so that God might be put on display and his work and his glory might be made manifest in this situation kind of clues us into this idea that this was predetermined. Jesus's answer to his disciples gives the real reason why this man was born blind and it wasn't because of someone's son. It was just simply that, that, that God's glory could be put on display. Jesus points us beyond any faulty theological assumptions which would tempt us to speculate God has a sovereign plan in mind and this man's blindness was neither personal nor parental it was providential it was God's providence that this would happen that God wants to glorify himself in this trial God had determined to do his work in this man God planned to bring about this trial at this time in this man's life to put the works of his father on display and this is true throughout the whole Bible Maybe nowhere better can this be seen than in the life of Joseph. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 50, and we'll look at verses 19 and 20. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you about Joseph, who was beat up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, accused of doing something he never did, was put into prison, forgotten while he was in prison, and then through the God-given supernatural ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he became second in command of all of Egypt. And after his brothers were in Israel, had faced a famine, they came to Egypt to buy grain, and they eventually found that Joseph was in a position of power and in fear 
the brothers fell down before him and begged him for forgiveness. And in response to this, Joseph says this, Genesis 50, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear. <coughs> Excuse me. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You know what we're being hinted at already? God put me here. Don't be afraid. We're not in the place of God. God's doing this. Right here, right now, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. These brothers meant it for evil. All along, God meant it for good. God knew about the famine. He knew that he needed Joseph in Egypt. This was his way of providing enough grain to sustain not only Egypt, Israel's arch enemy at the time, but supply grain for Israel, namely these people. He knew that this family of Joseph would come for grain. He knew that they would eventually all move there, all 70 of them. He knew that they would multiply and become a great nation. He knew the whole story that we know of Israel. And this is part of that story. <coughs> Excuse me. What I like about verse 20 is it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you ever notice it's the same word? It doesn't say, well, what man meant for evil, God allowed for good. What man meant for evil, somehow God will figure out a way to make good of it. No, 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 it's the same word. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And that word meant, according to Halot, a Hebrew lexicon, that word meant means to devise. It means to invent. It means to plan. It can also mean to do something for good. It means, get this, it means to weave. And if you put all this together, this word means to plan, to weave for your good. I remember as a kid growing up watching my mom cross-stitch. Mama, what you doing? She'd be sitting in her chair, cross-stitching away. And for those of you who don't know, that's like if you're not really good at sewing, you can just put some X's in that canvas, right? It's X, 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 X. So she's doing that deal, and I'm sitting there on the floor looking up. Mama, what you doing? What you, Mama, what is that? And I remember my mom taking it and turning it around. I'd say, look at him. It'd be like this pretty picture of like a barn, you know, with a cow, the sunshine. I'm like, oh, Mama, you're so good. She's like, thank you. You know, she keeps, <laughs> keeps cross-stitching. But you get the idea. From the bottom, probably even more so on a tapestry, it looks like a mess. And you see all the threads, and they're just kind of running all together, and they're all uneven, and they're kind of all over the place. Thanks, JR. Let's give this man a hand, shall we? Come on. Let's give this man a hand. That's what I'm talking about. That's service right there. My apologies. So in the, in the illustration again, right, <clears throat> the idea is the tapestry, it's a mess on the bottom. And you can't see clearly until you take it and you look at the top side. And you're like, how beautiful. How amazing. That's incredible. And that's what we're talking about when we see that what man meant for evil, that's a mess. You're just seeing it from the bottom side. This is so ugly. And yet you see it from God's perspective have you ever heard that incredible poem from Corey Ten Boom on this? As you know, it was the Dutch lady, the daughter of the clockmaker who spent time in a German concentration camp for helping Jews escape, right, 
and she was there for a while at the concentration camp. She learned so much. She talks about forgiveness, but she also wrote a poem about this idea of weaving. The title of her poem is Life is But a Weaving. Do you remember? My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows. He loves. He cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. What an incredible reminder of the truth that we're talking about, that from all this we learn that none of us are in the place of God. He ordains, He orchestrates, He oversees all that happens in our lives. We can trust that He's weaving a beautiful picture that He wants us to see at the time He reveals it to us. It might be in the pain. It might be later after the pain. It might be when you're in heaven. But at some point, you will be able to have a better understanding. In the meantime, we have to trust Him. It's for our good. And as you look over the scope of your life, all of your successes and all of your failures and all of your good days and all of your bad days and all the blessings and all the difficulties in your life, God means them for good. We read the same thing in Romans 8, 28. Turn there with me, if you will, because I want to make sure that you also see verse 29, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, or if you have an NASB, it says God causes all things to work together for good. Look at verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's what I want you to see in verse 28 and 29. God causes all things to work together for good. And you say, what? I don't see any good from getting cancer. I don't see any good from my beloved family member dying in a car wreck. I don't see any good from my dad dropping dead of a heart attack. Right? What, what in the world is good in that? And that's why we need verse 29 as well that reminds us God foreknew that and he predestined that and he wants to conform us into the image of his son. That's the good. The good is he's using your trial to make you more like Jesus. He's using your difficulty, your hardship, your circumstance as a tool in his hand to say, I'm going to use this to help my son, my daughter, look more like Jesus, to conform them into the image of Christ. God is working in your triumphs and in your trials and in your faithfulness and in your failures and in your ups and in your downs, all according to his purpose. And his purpose is that you would be comforted with the love of God. And as you're comforted with his love, that you're conformed into the image of his son. 
Do you believe that God is holding you in the midst of your trial this morning? Do you sense his care for you today? What God has planned with that trial, what he has allowed and even ordained with that trial to be brought into your life, are you trusting him that he is weaving a tapestry? Are you viewing the tapestry from the bottom? Or with God's help through his word and by his spirit, would you like to take a peek at that tapestry from the top? Well, in addition to trusting God that your trial was predetermined, you can also, your next blank, praise God that your trial has a purpose. It has a purpose. And some of these thoughts overlap a little bit, but God had a purpose in allowing this man to be born blind from birth. We would say what man meant for evil, God meant for good. He meant for this man to be born blind from birth. And one of the reasons was is this is an opportunity for us to see something in Jesus showing himself right here in a special way, unique in all of the Gospels. And that is this. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus heal a man with a congenital defect. This is the one place in the Bible where there's a congenital defect, meaning born with birth, where Jesus does this miraculous miracle. That clues us into what are called the messianic miracles that only the Messiah would do. Only the Messiah would cleanse a leper. And only the Messiah would cast out a demon of a man who was dumb, meaning he couldn't speak. And only the Messiah would heal a man born blind. And these three messianic miracles all pointed to the fact that the man who did that would be the Messiah. And so Jesus is revealing himself in a powerful way but I said, hey, you see that man over there? Born blind? Bring him over here to me. I'm, I'm going to heal that man. It's going to be another sign pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a special miracle where Jesus is showing himself to be God with the power to create sight for this man. This was the work of God displayed in this man who would become a witness for Christ. Have you ever considered the fact that in your trial, God wants to show you something special about his love for you? That maybe you couldn't see it without the trial. Maybe he has allowed you to be afflicted so that you could see his affection and his love for you. God's purpose in your trial is that you would glorify him. And there's no better way to glorify him than to repent and to rejoice in him. So God's purpose in your trial is that you would repent and that you would rejoice. Let me show you each one of those. Turn to Luke chapter 13. Let's first talk about in your trial, there's the opportunity for you to repent, for you to repent. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus is interacting with some and they're talking about two coincidences. We know that those things were ordained by God and what the point of them was. Luke chapter 13 verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you, what? Repent you will all likewise perish. Second story, or those 18 whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
with these two tragedies, it may be easy to think that those who died somehow had sinned in a worse way and therefore they died a more tragic death. But Jesus says that it is not that which happened. What happened is everybody's a sinner. We're all guilty of God's wrath. These people didn't sin necessarily in a worse way. They just died. And that's what's going to happen to us all one day. And unless we repent, we'll all suffer in hell forever. And so the fact that death happens, whether it appears to be by accident or appears to be something that happens, you know, late in your life and you just kind of die of old age, the idea is we all die. And when we die, it's a reminder for those of us who are living, one day I'm going to die. And if I'm not right with the Lord, that I'm not going to heaven. And so Jesus pleads with his listeners to say the reason these things happen is to remind you, you need the gospel. You need the love of God. Life is bigger than trials. Eternity is bigger than trials. These are just little things in this life, but I want to talk to you about eternity. And Jesus says, you need to repent. Every time you hear about a trial and someone dies, you need to think, but for the grace of God, I could also die. And but for the grace of God, I could be going to hell. But because of the grace of God, I have an opportunity to go to heaven. And because of the grace of God, I want to be a better evangelist to tell other people that while they're startled about this scary mass shooting or plane crash or whatever else we hear about in the daily news, that you say, you know what, I'm going to give hope to people and remind them they don't have to ultimately be afraid of death because death can be a doorway to eternal life but I've got to tell them about repentance. Not only do trials come for salvation, repentance, but they also come for sanctification. That would be our rejoicing. Turn with me to Romans 5. So trials come that we can repent. Trials come that we can rejoice. Romans chapter 5, the verse, first two verses talk about we rejoice in the fact we've been justified by faith. And then down in verse 3, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. So not only do we rejoice in our salvation, we rejoice in our sanctification, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. This is actually unbelievable. We're, we're told right here in the Bible to actually rejoice in our sufferings. Maybe not in the pain itself, but in what the pain produces. And it produces endurance. And it produces character. And it produces hope. You know, a few years back, there was a great experiment in the desert called the biodome. This biodome created a living environment for human, plant, and animal life. A huge glass dome was constructed to house an artificial controlled environment with purified air and water and healthy soil and filtered light. The intent was to afford perfect growing conditions for trees, fruits, and vegetables as well as for humans. People lived in the biodome for many months at a time and everything seemed to be going well with one exception. When trees grew to a certain height, they would topple over, and it baffled scientists until they realized that they forgot to include the natural element of wind. Trees need wind to blow against them because it causes their root systems to grow deeper, which supports the tree as it grows taller. 
Too often, we long for a perfect growing environment for our lives with no disruptions and no trials. And we strive to avoid the times of contrast and tension when life's daily challenges push against us. But God knows what is best for us. The creator of all of life also creates trials that allow us to grow stronger and to grow our roots deeper. We can learn a great deal from God's wisdom at work in creation. Watch how a tree bends and sways gracefully when the wind blows against it. It does not stand rigid, resisting the trial opposed against it. It does not push back. The tree accepts the strong wind as a blessing that helps it grow. I wonder what you're like when the wind blows. Do you bend? Do you stand rigid? Do you break? It's only by the grace of God that we can realize that God's intention behind the trial is to allow us to grow deeper, to grow stronger, to be more dependent on Him, which is why we read in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Are we rejoicing in our trials this morning? Do we count them all joy? Do we see God's purpose in making us steadfast, in refining us and completing us to the point where we lack nothing? I think almost all of you are probably aware of Johnny Erickson Tata, who has been a quadriplegic for 50 years. And she recently said, he has chosen not to heal me, but to uphold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. God could remove all pain and suffering, but he doesn't. God could pull you out of your predicament, but what if he chooses to leave you in it? If he does leave you in your trial, he will hold you tight. He will comfort you. He will reveal himself to you in ways you cannot imagine. Regardless of her numerous accomplishments, Johnny Erickson Tata admits that her day-to-day -day life of almost total dependence on others has been difficult. Many times when Johnny wakes up in the morning, she wonders how she is going to make it through another day in a paralyzed body. But Johnny explains that because she has pushed up against God, and God has shown her some deep things about His purpose and Himself, which are so satisfying in her words, so pleasurable that she wouldn't trade the wheelchair for anything. Johnny has allowed God to use her tragic situation to accomplish things she would have never accomplished had it not been for her accident. How can you rejoice in your trials? Because they've led you to God, led you to a deeper faith, your trials, are they strengthening you or are they crushing you? And it all depends on our perspective of how we see. If we just see the tapestry from the bottom, it's going to always be a mess and you will get bitter at God. But if you learn by faith to realize God is up to something good, then I'm going to learn, this last point says, ask God to show you how your trials can lead to praise. 
how your child's can lead to praise. We don't have time to adequately share this point, but I think you already know it. Job had the worst day of his life. He lost all of his possessions and all of his children. And in that moment, he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He praised God in the midst of his trial. And he said, naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's chapter one. Chapter two, it gets worse. He loses his health and he's got sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Do you know what happens in chapter three through 38? Job eventually loses his grip and he begins to complain against God. And he tells God he wishes he was never born. And then at the end of the book, God confronts him and rebukes him. And Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. I had heard about you, but my eyes had never seen you. But I see you now, Lord. I see you now after God had spent chapters in the end of Job reminding him that God is all-powerful and that he is all-loving. Job finally fully gets it. He did well in chapter 1. But I'm just saying sometimes it's easy in the short run to do well with trials. But how do you do with trials when they go on day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year? At some point, we're human. You will crumble and you will complain to some degree, right? Not fully because God was gracious with Job, even though he rebukes him at the end. He also shows him. He reveals his omnipotence and his omniscience. And he basically says, Job... You just have to trust me with this one, big guy. I'm God, you're not. All you can do is trust me. And that's when Job covered his mouth and he says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I heard of you with the ear, but now I see you. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job came to the place where he struggled, but at the end, he still trusts God. He still praises God. And maybe you're out there today and you say, well, Adam, you don't understand. My trial is unique and it's different than anyone else's trial. My heart goes out to you and I would give you that. Maybe your trial is unique and maybe it's worse than anything I've certainly experienced. And maybe you might even challenge Job and say it's worse than what Job's experienced, though I think this is pretty bad. But let's say that that's where you're at. I have some encouragement for you this morning. And it comes through Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who on that type of thought writes this. Our Lord Jesus did for him, the man born blind, what he had never done for anyone else before this man. This pleasing fact seems to me to be full of consolation to any persons here present who labor under the idea that theirs is a most peculiar and hopeless case. It probably is not as solitary and special a case as you think. But even if we grant you your supposition, there is no room for despair since Jesus delights to open up new paths of grace. Our Lord is inventive 
in His love. He devises new modes of His mercy. It is His joy to find out and relieve those whose miserable condition has baffled all other help. His mercy is not bound by precedence. He preserves a freshness and originality of love. Don't you love Spurgeon? God is showing us through maybe this quote that no matter your plight and no matter your predicament this morning, there's a freshness of God's love for you. And if you believe you are beyond the bonds of mercy, the bounds of mercy, you are not. Right? If you believe that your faith is dried up, He will renew it. If you believe your despair has gotten the best of you, He will direct new channels of grace. Receive the life-giving mercy of our Lord. Drink from the fountain of living water. Come to the outstretched arms of Jesus today who will hold you tight. So why do bad things happen to good people? So that in Christ you can see that good has come to you who without Him are bad. Why does God allow you to suffer? So that you might know the sweetness of the satisfaction that only comes from intimacy with the Savior. Have you repented of your sin? If so, tis a grace that only comes from a loving God. Are you rejoicing in Christ through your trial? If so, tis evidence of the one who has been touched by the love of the Savior. And all of this has happened to you that the work of God might be displayed through you. Three quick questions at the end. How do you respond when you face trials in your life? Do you get bitter or do you get better? It all depends on the response that you have looking to Christ. Number two, have you learned to see trials as God's tool for good? Hopefully by now, and as you continue to grow and mature in your life, when you're in the midst of a trial, you can say, ah, God's up to something good. I don't know what it is. I'm a little bit anxious. God help me, but I know he's up to something good. Lord, help me see the top of the tapestry. I'm not going to just view it from the bottom side and throw up my hands in despair. I'm going to trust the Lord. Number three, are there works of God being displayed in your trials? That's what he wants to do. Nothing else. He wants you to be just like this blind man, that whatever he does and however he ministers to you, to whatever degree, that you could be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and tell others about his goodness and about his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to deal with a very challenging subject, and yet there's great hope for us who know Christ in the Scripture of how to deal with trials. And I just pray, God, that this would be a great reminder to so many of us today and maybe a brand new thought for others. Either way, God, we don't ever want to be assuming that we know and we certainly don't want to hit people over the head with God's up to something good in the midst of pain. We need to just sometimes weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And we need to listen sometimes more than talking. And yet, Lord, at the same time, at some point, we want to be able to answer the hard questions using the Scripture, which is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. And we want to shepherd our own hearts so that we can have good answers to step up to the, to the Rabbi Kushners of the world. We have something more truthful and more satisfying in the Scripture to help us answer some of these difficult questions. And so I pray you'd be glorified 
in our hearts, in our lives as we consider these things from your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.